It's the weekend, and this is your DSR Daily Bonus Brief. I'm Grant Haver. And I'm Chris Cotnor. Today, we're joined by Alex Stapleton, the Senior Climate Policy Advisor at Foreign Policy for America. Alex, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Great to be here. What is COP27, and what can we expect to come out of it? Sure. So COP27 in climate diplo speak is the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change's Conference of the Parties. It takes place every year. Um, It's the sort of architecture under which the Paris Agreement was negotiated, and it's the main instrument of international climate governance. One of the things we've been following closely is the conversations around loss and damage. I just was wondering, you know, what you thought if anything would come of those come of those discussions sure and so i think there are some divergent views on how successful this cop or any future cop uh, at least in the sort of proximate sense will be on loss and damage but i think the fact that it's on the agenda that you have parties especially the us and other oecd partners that are willing to talk about it and dip their toe in the water sort of on on the issue of loss and damage before we is impactful. And I think it's sort of a technical term that deserves a little bit of unpacking because it is so totemic for a lot of developing countries. The sort of grand architecture of international climate action deals with three main themes. Mitigation, which is what we do to reduce emissions that contribute to global temperature rise. Adaptation, which is how we confront the changing climate to the extent that nothing that we do um, to affect mitigation can can diminish some of those impacts. And then loss and damage is basically everything else. So the things that you can't mitigate, you can't adapt to, how do you ensure that the people around the world that are bearing the costs of climate change are sort of attributing those costs to those that contributed the most to climate change? Lots been made about the U.S. and China and and their sort of share of of global emissions and how China is the largest emitter. That's true in in a sort of immediate and snapshot sense. But if you look back at historic emissions, the U.S. is still by far the largest contributor to carbon emissions over the last century and a half. So this is really a sort of conceptual, a conceptual framework for recognizing that those that contributed the least to climate change and are bearing the greatest cost now deserve some kind of recognition from the countries that have over time done the most to destabilize the climate. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I recall earlier in the the summit that the head of Antigua and Barbuda, who was acting as sort of the spokesperson for a group of small island nations, called on not just the the typical people, the US, EU, UK, but also China and India to be a part of the loss and damage payback, given what you were just saying, that China is such a a large emitter. Do you think that's likely? Like, even in his statement, he acknowledged that they're still developing countries. Like, I just can't imagine that India and China say, ah, we're still developing, but we owe you other more developing countries money in some way. It's a fair challenge, and I think it ultimately will come down to sort of how you frame it. China, in its response, you might have seen, has suggested that it is providing and will continue to provide assistance that could sort of be conceived of as loss and damage finance, but it's doing it through the rubric of South-to-South cooperation. 
sort of partnerships in solidarity with those G77 countries you mentioned. I think if you're too explicit about insisting that China adopt the same terminology and that its loss and damage finance be categorized in the same way, then I think you're right. It's probably unlikely. But I think it is helpful that China is at least in the conversation and that you're starting to see some recognition that with Chinese emissions still rising and likely to rise for the next seven years or so, they have to be part of this conversation. I also think it's important to recognize that the entire conversation around loss and damage is not going to be a short-term one. I think anyone who sort of expects that we'll land at the end of this COP with a defined mechanism or facility with contribution tables and a governance structure set up for loss and damage and doesn't necessarily have the best beat on, on the stage that those conversations are in. As I said, the most impactful thing, I think, about loss and damage in COP26 and now especially in COP27 is that you have some willingness on the part of donor countries to talk about this in a meaningful way. There have been some concrete examples, not on the scale you need to see and, and certainly not in a way that would, would satisfy the, the countries that are bearing the brunt of climate impacts right now. But you've seen some moves from countries like Denmark, I think it was, a couple of other jurisdictions, subnational jurisdictions that have set aside small amounts of money that they are explicitly casting as assistance for loss and damage, separate and apart from adaptation. What does it actually mean when you say developing countries are bearing the brunt of the climate change emissions from countries like the United States and China? And then a follow-up to that is, what's the expectation in terms of, you know, if, if, if ultimately down the road there's some sort of cash compensation, what are they supposed to do with it? So it, it is meant to make up for lost life and livelihood, lost, lost in lives and livelihood. I think the sort of clearest, most immediate example you can point to is the situation in Pakistan. And that's what a lot of the conversations have been grounded in so far, both in the run-up to COP and at COP, a sort of recognition that climate is taking a toll today, that those countries that are most severely impacted are the ones not only that contributed the least to it, but are also least equipped to adapt and to manage those risks. And so you see, you know, displaced populations, entire communities that have seen their sort of economic base impacted. There is a, a concern that, you know, the, the more you go down this path of discussing loss and damage, the more it begins to resemble a compensation um, a conversation about reparations or liability, which is something that the U.S., especially given the difficulty in sort of attributing individual disasters and climate-related events to a particular ton of carbon that was emitted. It is a pretty intractable issue, and it's one of the things that, you know, is going to have to be part of the conversation about developing a framework for loss and damage. But as far as what it means that countries that are least contributing to the problem are often paying the highest cost. Some of it is, is a feature of development pathways and where they are in the process of, of sort of transitioning from a developing to a middle income to an advanced economy. 
But part of it is about physical features. You know, a lot of this conversation has been driven by small island developing states. Those are countries for which climate is an existential issue in the way that, quite frankly, it it isn't and wouldn't be for even similarly situated countries that just don't have the same physical exposure to climate risk. So we're about halfway through the summit. In a week from now, if we had you back, what would you hope that you're able to say was accomplished during this year's summit? I would say that at the end of every COP, you have a huge chorus of voices that will say, this COP was a complete success. Here's XYZ reasons why. And you will have an equally large and passionate chorus saying this was a complete failure uh, countries didn't step up their ambition or their level of climate action and were heading toward a looming disaster or maybe already in one. I think both can be true at the same time, as frustrating as that is. There, there are major successes that I think that are in the realm of the possible for achieving here. And I think loss and damage, having some kind of defined framework for continuing that conversation, for arriving at some kind of compensatory framework is achievable. Will we have all the details figured out? No, but will there be a roadmap? Possibly. And I think that would be a major success. On the other side of the equation, which is sort of mitigation, adaptation, climate action, what we're actually doing to reduce our emissions and build a more resilient society. That's a question of moving from ambition to action. There were a slew of pledges that were made at the previous COP. There are a slew of pledges that have been made since in the form of enhanced nationally determined contributions. That's the sort of main climate target setting process under the Paris Agreement. Countries have have come forward with more ambitious NDCs, as they say. But the policy implementation has lagged. And I think you've seen a lot of fair criticism not just of governments, but of private sector actors too. And and COP does a great job of, and has for the past several COPs, of bringing all segments of society together, recognizing that there's a role for national governments, for subnational governments, for civil society, for businesses, and driving forward climate action. But across the board, the shift from talking about reducing emissions to actually delivering on those promises has lagged. The UN Secretary General set up a high-level expert working group to discuss specifically the net zero pledges coming out of the private sector. And they came out with a pretty scathing report that indicated the sort of transparency and the integrity of those pledges isn't really being adhered to, and that there is a need for more uniformity and more information to inform implementation of those pledges. I think that's another track on which we could see some major progress at COP. And if we did come away on November 18th with a real drive to improve the sort of meaningfulness of these net zero pledges, then that would be a major win. So let me finish with kind of a broader question around climate policy, which is, as you mentioned during that that last answer, it's the follow up and follow through that's the hardest part. And we're in an environment where energy prices are going through the roof, especially in Europe, where you see inflation becoming a real problem. Do you think countries will prioritize climate 
in the face of these other looming catastrophes so that we don't end up in a world where climate is the number one catastrophe constantly all the time. Yeah, that's it, it's a great way of framing the issue. And I think it brings up an important point, which is that the same ways we say we solve for climate change are the same ways, the ways that we solve for climate change are the same ways that we solve for a lot of these other crises. So on, on energy security and affordability, for example, I mean, it's it's been proven that the greatest driver of new investment in the energy sector is clean energy. There's a reason that the Inflation Reduction Act, which is framed rightly as the sort of single most consequential piece of climate legislation Congress has ever passed, is at its core a piece of domestic industrial policy that's focused on jobs and the economy. So I think we can confront both issues and say that the, the tools that we apply to reduce our emissions are the same ones that we want to apply to improve our economic competitiveness, improve the stability of the sort of geopolitical landscape, and improve our trading relations. These are all things that come down to what we do to affect a global energy transition and lead the way in doing that. That's all the time we have for today. If you have a tip, topic, or correction you'd like to flag for us, please email us at podcasts at the dsrnetwork.com. Every week before these bonus briefs, we ask you about the questions you have in our member Slack channel, so join us there to be a part of that discussion. Thanks to your membership for making conversations like this possible. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you on Monday. <laughs>